In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O God, for this day. We ask, O Lord, always for your blessing, grant us your peace, and help us to trust in you in all things. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Good evening, everybody. God willing, today we're going to have another Q&A session. Um, if you would like to submit any questions uh, for any future session, you can do so at the link on the screen. Uh, the link is a little shorter now than it was before. The old link will continue to work, but um, this new link, stpaulhouston.org slash Q&A, um, you can um, submit anonymous uh, questions online. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. <clears throat> so first question for today is, what is the church's stance on stock trading? Um, this question actually came in, I believe, before the recent activity that's happened in the stock market related to the company GameStop, um, which I'm going to explain uh, a little briefly if, if you're not familiar with it. But um, before I get into the question about stock trading and, and what we believe about stock trading, um, I'm going to focus on two, two other principles that we always speak about related to money. So we can kind of have that understanding in the context of speaking about stock trading. Okay. The first uh, important principle to keep in mind is the idea of the love of money. The, the scripture speaks very much and very clearly about the love of money, not the having of money, right? Having of money and being rich, there's nothing wrong with that. This is a blessing that God gives to some to have money, okay? The, the, the issue is not having money. The issue is loving money. So I'm going to read for you a few verses here um, to kind of get a sense of what does the scripture say about the love of money? So in Matthew 6, Christ says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So very clear in this verse saying, you know, focus more of your attention, more of your time, you know, more of your energy on laying up the heavenly treasure, right? as opposed to laying up the earthly treasure. The earthly treasure is temporary. The earthly treasure can be stolen, can be corrupted, can be destroyed, can be lost, whereas the heavenly treasure does not, okay? Um, in Proverbs 13, 11, it says, he who gathers by labor will increase. The idea that, um, you know, that our increase should be through our labor, should be through our work, should be through, um, you know, so, something that we're doing that's not just like the lottery, for instance, right? The lottery is just the winning of money instantly, right? Um, and which, which can be very addictive and which can indicate the love of money and which is something that kind of comes for free, right? It's not something that we work to attain. Um, he who gathers by labor will increase. First Timothy chapter six says, but those who desire to be rich will fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Right? So here it says, what, what is a temptation and a snare? Again, it's not wealth. It's the desire to be wealthy, the desire to be rich. 
what is it that I'm going to do to be rich? Okay, this is, is, a, is a temptation and a snare, right? That drown men in destruction, right? The drown men in destruction. And then it says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, like the foundation, like the beginning of all kinds of evil is the, is the love of money. And some stray from the faith as a result because of their greediness, because of the, the lust for money that leave the faith, right? Straight from the faith for the sake of money. Like money is something that can separate us from God, the desire for it and what we're willing to do to attain it. And then concludes as pierce themselves through with many sorrows, meaning my, my desire, my lust for money has increased so much and what I'm willing to do for it has increased so much that I live in sorrow, maybe because of, you know, what I've done in order to try to attain money. Uh, but, but I'm living constantly with sorrow, okay? That's the first concept, okay, is the idea of love of money. The second is the concept of addiction. Okay, so in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, St. Paul says, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Right? So there could be something that is actually good, okay? But it, I am brought under its power in the sense that when I, when, I come, when I approach it, when I come to do it, I find myself unable to control myself. I find that it has authority over me, that it has control over me, that it asserts itself on me, and I am not able to um, control myself, right? Something that is addictive. And so anything can be addictive, right? Like something can be addictive um, that in and of itself is good, right? Um, I can be addicted to, to something that is good, but it turns into an addiction uh, where I cannot control myself. And so it becomes harmful to me. Um, the last verse I want to mention related to addiction is 1 John 2, verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Okay. So, so again, this idea that, number one, we have to be mindful whenever we do anything of whether it's reflecting that I have a love of money. And two, I have to be careful of whether I'm doing something that is uh, addictive, leading me to addiction. Okay. So let's get to the question, okay, of stock trading. Okay, what is the church's stance on stock trading? So first we ask, what is it? Okay, what does it mean to trade stock? Okay, so what is a stock? A stock is essentially a part of a company. So when you buy a stock, you are buying part of the company. Okay, and if the price of that stock goes up uh, over time, because other people also want to buy the company after you, the stock goes up. And essentially, if you were to sell your stock, at that point, you would make money, right? Um, many companies offer retirement plans in the form of like 401k accounts where you can invest part of your uh, salary for every paycheck into different mutual funds, okay? Mutual funds are an aggregation, right, of different stocks. So instead of me buying an individual stock, let's say in Google or Microsoft or Tesla or whatever, um, uh, which is higher risk because it's just an individual company, you have these big mutual funds that aggregate all kinds of stocks, all kinds of companies together. And so when I buy a share of a mutual fund, it's like buying individual parts of each of the constituent companies. So it's, it's safer, it's less risky. Um, and usually people who invest in mutual funds are doing it more on the long term, whether it be for long term savings or retirement or so on, because it's, it's less risky. Okay. Um, so the, the question then is really not a question of, um, is stock trading good or bad, okay? 
it's about the mentality. It's about the approach. It's about the way that I do it. It's, it's about my goal. Okay. In it, because when you, when you look at it from a long-term approach, then what am I doing? Well, I'm investing in a company. I'm saying I'm taking some of my money and I'm investing it in a company because I believe that in the long run, that company will gain. And especially when I put it in a mutual fund where um, it's a lower risk and I have all kinds of companies and it's, it's a long-term investment, right? It's not something that I'm planning to buy and sell several times a day or, or a week or, or, you know, it's, it's something that um, it's, it's a long-term thing. So the mentality that's in my mind when I make a long-term investment is I'm just going to put it in and I'm going to, yes, maybe monitor it, but not monitoring it in an obsessive way um, and, and let the money grow over time. And, you know, and sometimes it's going to go up, sometimes it's going to go down, but the trajectory, the long-term trajectory is up, right? That's, that's an investment, okay? But there's another type of stock trading, which is a short-term, right? Very different way of thinking about it, right? Instead of putting money in and for the long-term investment, maybe it's like day trading where I buy a stock and I'm monitoring even over the course of a single day, minute by minute, hour by hour, in a given day of how that stock is going up and coming down. And I'm making these strategic buys and sells um, to try to catch the upward swings of a stock, okay? Um, oftentimes these day traders are doing individual stocks. You know, they're not doing these big funds like mutual funds. And the aim is like short-term gain. You know, the aim is I wanna make money now. I wanna have the money right now, okay? So the long-term trading, the goal is to have the money in the future, the short-term trading, the idea is to have the money now. So while both of them, in what I just described, while both of them are fundamentally the same mechanism and the idea that they're both stock trading, but the attitude that I have when I approach them is very different, right? Let me go back to the, the two points that I mentioned at the beginning, the love of money and the addiction, right? Um, with the short-term trading, right, it's an immediate gain. I want the money now. I want it immediately. I want to make it. I want to make it big, and I want to make it today. I want to make it right now because I I want the money right away. Okay, so this could be reflecting a love of money. It could be reflecting this desire, like like it says in First Timothy six: those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare. It can it be easy for me to become obsessed with it, to be looking at it from moment to moment to moment to become distracted by it, even from other activities. It's easy to fall into addiction, especially if you are successful. Um, at some point, um, you, you begin to feel like you're invincible. You begin to feel like you can keep doing it and you can keep winning. And kind of like gambling, um, you can put in a lot of money, uh, you know, the expectation of getting a lot out, but you might get burned and you might lose it all, right? And so you might, you might when you lose it, you might wanna say, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to do it again, maybe to recoup the losses that I've made which might make me lose even more, right? So in, in a general sense, short-term trading is, is a lot more like gambling, okay? Where you're hoping to essentially get lucky, right? Because you cannot control or predict or, or understand from moment to moment in the middle of a day, you know, like why the stock is going to be moving up or down, right? It, it's, it's just like, it's, kind of, it's like gambling. It's like something is changing. You want to get on, you want to get in on it when it's good. Um, and it's not really based on any fundamentals. It's not really based on some long-term strategy, or I really believe that this particular company is making a product that's really going to be valuable um, in the future. And so I'm going to invest in the company over time, right? 
that's not what you're doing with the short-term stock trading. You're just essentially getting in and, 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 and taking a big risk and hoping that it, that it turns out good. Okay. And the end. and people can, this can be like a whole full-time job and you can write even algorithms. Actually, one of the uh, companies that um, when I was working like that, um, wanted me to interview with them. It was a, a company where my whole job would have been writing software to predict um, the, the stock market and would automatically do trades, buys and sells based on all these statistics and algorithms that, you know, professional stock traders have come up with so that essentially the money and the trades are all happening automatically, right? Like that's what these big companies are doing. So, so getting into, into that can be very addictive and it can, it can reflect very much like the immediate gain that I want to have right now. Okay. In addition to that, because what I mean, what I've described is just the basics, right? There is even higher risk stuff that people get involved in. Okay, something called short selling. Um, short selling is essentially betting that a company will lose and that its stock price will drop, and that you actually borrow. Uh, essentially, you're borrowing money to uh, with the and betting that it's going to go down. And so, if it doesn't go down and instead it goes up, you you can lose an unlimited amount of money. Like you can you can lose a lot of money. So in recent days, in the last week or maybe a little over a week, uh, there have been a lot of talk in the news about a company called GameStop. Um, and uh, essentially this company, um, there are a lot of the very big hedge funds um, on Wall Street that, have, that are short selling this company, which, meaning, which means that they're betting that they're gonna lose and that their stock is gonna go down. And so a lot of private investors decided to all get together and to buy this stock, right? thereby pushing up the value of this GameStop, which then caused these big hedge funds to lose money. Actually, Melvin Capital, which was uh, a, a fund that had had short sold this GameStop a lot, it, they lost half of their value in January alone, right? 53%. They lost 53% of the value of that fund all just in January because of this, right? So it's a, it's a game and people are, you know, it's very, it's very risky, right? So while the concept of investing in a company that you expect to increase over time is a smart thing to do, it's a way to you know, invest your money right now when you put your money in a checking account, there's the interest rates are zero, right? So you don't make any money at all. And actually you lose money because the cost of living is increasing over time, right? So if you just put your money in a, in a checking account that makes zero interest, you're actually losing money over time, right? Because, because your money is getting less and less valuable. So the idea of investing it in some safe long-term thing, of course, according to your needs and according to your situation, is smart and and it's not it's not sinful, right, to do so. But the idea of doing the short-term trading, where it's very very risky, and individual stocks that are going up and down like in a wild way on a very short-term basis, that I would consider not to be investment as much as it is gambling, right? So you have to. Uh, look through like, you know, not the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. What is the spirit of the law? Okay. We don't call uh, short selling and we don't call short term day trading. We don't call it gambling, right? We call it stock trades, right? Um, but what is it really? What is the spirit of it? The spirit of it is like gambling, right? So just as gambling is wrong and, and, and can very easily make us fall into addiction. So also we should avoid this, right? But the long-term, you know, stock trading for saving money, this is, there's nothing wrong with this, right? There's nothing wrong with this. It doesn't mean there's no risk to it, 
but this your the spirit that you that you have when you do it is much more likely to be a, a, like a spirit of investing for the long term rather than a spirit of gambling where you're hoping to get rich soon immediately okay number two could you clarify when we're supposed to sit stand bow and kneel in the liturgy if we're not going to kneel what's the most next reverent option um so in the in the liturgy in the prayers the default is standing we're standing most of the time okay um so let me just mention there's a few places where it's typical to uh either uh, kneel or bow like the head okay so uh, at the absolution, at the end of the raising of incense, okay, whenever there's an absolution, we kneel, okay, because we're receiving a blessing at an absolution. Uh, at the absolution of the servants, okay, um, at the beginning of the liturgy of the word, we also kneel uh, there because we're receiving an absolution. Um, during all of the readings, we are seated, unless there's the, the priest is sensing with the censor. So if the priest is sensing with the censor, this is a time to pray. Um, so even if the reader is reading one of the readings, we stand up, okay? Um, obviously, during the sermon, people are seated. Uh, during the institution narrative, which is the, the time where the priest is praying for the consecration of the bread and wine into the body and the blood of Christ, when the deacon says, worship God in fear and trembling, okay? This is a time where the people will kneel, okay? Also, the people will kneel before the fraction when the priest says the holy body and the precious blood. At that point, the people will kneel uh, until the beginning of the actual fraction prayer. This is toward the end of the liturgy. Um, after this, there's a part where the people will say, in Christ Jesus, our Lord, and the deacon will respond, bow your heads to the Lord. And then the people will say before you, O Lord, and the deacon will say, let us attend in the fear of God. So during this part where it says bow your heads, so it's sufficient there just to bow your head. You don't have to actually prostrate and kneel on the ground, okay? And then the last time we kneel is during the confession, uh, which is right before communion um, starts. Uh, this is the kind of the, the different uh, postures, the different positions for, uh, for the liturgy. Um, the question of what is the next most reverent option? I mean, um, reverence is in the heart, right? Uh, reverence is, is not just in the body posture. You know, someone might be kneeling and be very irreverent, right? And someone might be sitting down and being very reverent, right? These body postures are intended to, to help us to be focused on what it is that we are doing and to have an awareness of what's happening in the liturgy at this time. And yes, to, to, to express humility and so on. But if somebody is, you know, unable to do these positions for whatever reason, um, do what you're able to do. You know, like if you would, instead of kneeling, for instance, because in practice, actually, if you're seated, seating, like seated in a pew and you're in the middle um, and there's not a lot of space between you and the pew in front of you, maybe it's difficult to kneel, right? Um, sit, sit down, maybe some people will sit down and, and like put their head on like the row in front of them, um, like in a prayer posture. Um, so I, I'm not trying to say that there's one right way to do this, right? And each person might be a little different in what they're able to do. Um, but the reference is in the heart and when we are expressing ourselves in prayer to God during the liturgy. Number three, was St. Peter living in celibacy with his wife? If yes, how do we know? And why did he adopt this kind of life? Um, so we know that St. Peter had a wife, 
Okay, uh, we, we, we read about this in more than one place, actually. So in Matthew 8, 14, it says, Now when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother uh, uh, lying sick with a fever. Okay, so we know that um, here, as it mentions, that the Lord saw the, the Peter's wife's mother uh, sick. So we know that he had a wife. Also in 1 Corinthians 9, 5, it says, do we have no right to take along a believing wife as do also the other apostles, the, brother of, uh, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? So here St. Paul is kind of when, in, when he's defending himself before the Corinthians and defending his apostleship. And he's telling the people like, um, you know, essentially that he has given up everything for them. He's given up all his rights for them. He's given up all his freedom for them because that is what he chooses to do out of love for, for, for them and for the service. Okay. And so he's kind of making this rhetorical statement and he, he's saying, don't I also have the right to have a wife? Right. Um, but I have foregone this. I have, I have abstained from this for your sake so that I can have more time to dedicate to your service. Right. That's what he's saying. So in this statement, he is saying um, that others, right, other apostles, and specifically Cephas, Cephas here um, is, uh, is St. Peter. So he's saying, um, believe, believing that he had a believing wife, okay? Um, also, St. Clement of Alexandria, he, he, he also makes a mention about uh, St. Peter's wife. He says, they say accordingly, that the blessed Peter, on seeing his wife led to death, rejoiced on account of her call and conveyance home, and called very encouragingly and comfortingly, addressing her by name, Remember thou the Lord. Such was the marriage of the blessed and their perfect disposition towards those dearest to them. Okay, so, um, so here's St. Clement also, right, one of the church fathers. He is referencing the idea that St. Peter had a wife, and not only that, but um, that she was martyred and that St. Peter was like encouraging her in her time of her martyrdom, okay? Beyond that, one of the, uh, one of the writers, uh, Eusebius, uh, he uh, indicated actually that St. Peter had children, okay? So there is a woman by the name of St. Petronilla, uh, she is believed to be the daughter of St. Peter. Some people believe that she is the daughter of some people, uh, of St. Peter. Some people say that she is his, uh, like, daughter in the flesh, like, physical daughter. Some people say that she is, like, a spiritual daughter, um, like, one of the disciples of St. Peter. Um, but regardless of whether St. Peter specifically had children or not, the idea of marriage and having children is, is holy, Right. There is nothing wrong with an apostle being married and having children. And actually, at the very beginning in the New Testament, one of the conditions of someone to be a bishop had to do with his relationship, right, to his, uh, to his family, okay? So 1 Timothy 3, verse 2 says, A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Right? So from the very beginning, it was permitted and normal and natural for the apostles to be married and have children, for the bishops that came after them to, to be married and have children and so on.
So there is nothing, uh, there's nothing to say that St. Peter was celibate. There's nothing to say that St. Peter couldn't have had children. And actually this was a very common practice at the time. When did this, uh, when did this change? So uh, I believe it was in the, um, in the fourth century, uh, the, around the third or fourth century, uh, there when the when the, the the fourth century the fourth century when when the period of persecution ended in the church so um, there were there were many uh, there were many many years of persecution and then when uh, King Constantine became king and he declared Christianity to be the uh, official uh, faith of the empire right and he actually um, you know uh, turned turn the, the pagan temples into churches. And, you know, it was like a, a golden era for Christianity at the time. And there was, the, there was, there was no more persecution at that time. Um, what was happening was, is that there were, there were people that desired to give their lives up to God, right? There were people like the martyrdom had become something so common and, 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 and that many people sought after martyrdom as a way of expressing of their faith. So um, because now this, there was no opportunity, right, for this, to those who had like that sincere and strong, fervent desire to give their lives to God, this is when the monastic movement began, okay? So monastic movement began by people voluntarily choosing to give up their life, quote unquote, not their physical life, but the life that they, that they lead, to give up their money, to give up the, you know, to, to take a vow of obedience um, and a vow of celibacy, okay? And so you started to have this group of people, the monks and, and the nuns, to, to, to be established as a separate class, like a separate group of people that choose to live this way. So it was seen then by the church that it made sense uh, to begin to select the bishops and the popes from among this group because they were completely consecrated to God. They had already taken all of these vows uh, of celibacy and and and, um, and and obedience and poverty, so it was seen like they would be the most qualified and the least distracted by any affairs of the world for them to take up the position of being the leaders of the church. Okay, so so it began to be that the popes and the bishops were were then selected among the monks. It's not because they must be. It's not because it was it would be wrong to have um, a bishop who is married. It, it, it's not according to scripture, right? It's not, it's just not, it has not become that as the tradition in the Coptic church. Um, and according to the tradition of the Coptic church, the bishops are selected from the, from the monks, but according to scripture, it's permitted, right? And we see the apostles even who had um, or married and had children. Number four. In Ecclesiastes 5.1, Solomon says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. What does that mean? Um, so I'm going to read for you the verse uh, from the New King James translation. Uh, it's, it's similar. It says, walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they do evil. Okay, and read it again. Walk prudently when you go into the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they do evil. Okay, what does it mean? It means go to the house of God with wisdom. 
You know, go to the house of God with understanding. Go to the house of God, understanding what it is that you are doing. And what is it, what is it that this place you are going to, right? Go there with an open mind to receive instruction and teaching, right? Um, and, and this could be in the form of knowledge. Like we go to church and we learn, you know, about, about God, about the Bible and so on. Um, it could also be for guidance, uh, for, for wisdom. It could be even uh, for rebuke, you know. Um, you know, sometimes we hear things uh, at church, whether it be in a corporate way, like in a sermon or in a Bible study or personally from our father confession, when we confess, that could be a form of rebuke, right? The wise person is the one who hears all of these things at the church and experiences all these things at the church with wisdom and understanding, okay? So what are some things that we should do when we go to church? One is we should listen with attentiveness, Right? Don't be distracted by the world outside. Sometimes we come to church and our mind is filled with the world outside. It could be worries that we have. It could be desires that we have. It could be fears that we have. It could be anything else that's coming from the world outside. And that is uh, actually distracting us. Instead, when we come to the Lord, we should bring these things to the Lord and put it at his feet in the sense that we are bringing them to God and we are trusting God to deal with them, to take care of them. And we trust God with them, right? as opposed to those things being barriers for me to listen to with attentiveness, okay? Also, we should listen with the intent to apply, right? Listen with the intent to apply. I'm not listening just so that I can gain knowledge, right? I'm, I'm listening because I want to learn to live, right? I'm, I'm learning and then I'm seeking to apply what is it that I've learned in my life outside. I'm not coming just to fill my mind with knowledge and interesting facts and information. I'm coming because I want to learn how to change my life, how to apply these principles outside in my life. Third, we should listen with self-reflection. We should apply what it is that we hear to ourselves and not to others. You know, oftentimes we're, we're sitting there and we hear something and we're thinking how much what's being said applies to my spouse, applies to my parent, applies to my friend, applies to my coworker, applies to my boss, applies to... Uh, you know, my fellow servants applies to anyone else, right? And I'm thinking, I really wish that that person was here. I really wish that person is paying attention um, because this is what they need to do, right? Listening with self-reflection means that I'm applying it to myself, right? How, how, what is it that I need to hear? And how is it that I need to change maybe in some point related to what I'm hearing? Also, we should listen with understanding, okay? If there's something that I hear, or experience while I'm at church, whether it be in a sermon, in a Bible study, in the liturgy, uh, whatever the case might be, if there's something that I don't understand, um, I should ask, right? Because I'm, I'm not coming just to participate in something without understanding, right? That's why we have um, many opportunities for, for learning. We have many opportunities to ask questions because if there's something I don't know, I shouldn't just do it without understanding. I should seek to understand so that I can do it with understanding. Uh, number five, when I go to the church, right, to the house of God, I should go there to worship God. It is, it is a worship, right? It is not just listening. It is a participation. There's an active participation. The word liturgy itself means work of the people. That's what the Greek word means, work of the people, that we are going to participate in the work of prayer together, right, as the body of Christ. So we are not going there just to listen to someone else but we are going there to be an active participant. That's why it's important for everyone to participate in the responses and the liturgy 
to, to learn and to chant the hymns, which are the prayers that the people are praying, right, to God. It is a part of our worship that we are worshiping God in the church. Um, the liturgy is also a time for uh, not just the corporate prayer where we are all praying, but it's also a time of personal prayer. You know, like sometimes in, in parts of the liturgy, I can, you know, close my eyes. I can be, be praying at, at my own prayer to God in the midst of that environment, right, in the liturgy. Also, a church is a place to serve other people, right? Not just to seek for someone to serve me, but to go and to serve other people and to be an active participant in these services, whether it be I'm serving others through like the Sunday schools or through one of the other services, or I'm serving people through encouragement. I'm serving people by being a good example. I'm serving uh, you know, people in many ways and participating in other types of services as well, like attending Bible studies, investors, community service, you know, anything else that the church is offering is something that is an opportunity for me to be involved in, in serving and, and to uh, attend um, other services as well in the church. Um, finally, the church is a place to unite with God, right? And th this is the, the, the reason for everything else, right, that I, that I mentioned is because we want to be united with God. And all of these things, the listening um, and, and the serving and the being served, all of those ultimately have the one goal, which is to be united with God in spirit and truth, that we worship him in spirit and truth. Um, what are some foolish reasons, right, to go to the house of God when the verse says walk prudently when you go, right, right, or walk wisely when you go to the house of God? What are some foolish ways, right, to go to the house of God? One is I'm going because I'm supposed to go, right? It's one thing for children who, you know, don't understand uh, to be, we force them to do things against their will um, because it's good. Like we, we tell them, no, you have to go to school. You have to eat your vegetables. You have to do this and this and this. And as long as they are children, right? Without understanding, we are trying to train them and instill in them right principles. You need to go to Sunday school. You need to go to church. You need to do these things. Um, but the aim is, is that as they reach certain age of maturity, that they begin to do those things uh, of their own volition, their own desire, um, of their own will, because now they have been convinced, right, that they that it is good, right? And so we also should be doing the same. Like when we go to church, we shouldn't be doing it because of a sense of guilt, you know, like I, I, I need to go because I'm supposed to go. I need to go because if I don't go, someone's gonna, you know, make a comment about why didn't I go? You know, that's, that shouldn't be the reason to go, okay? Also, my reason to go shouldn't just be because I want to see my friends and acquaintances there, right? It's a social hangout place. It's a place to mingle and socialize, even though it might be have those, those aspects to it, even though, I mean, fellowship is an important part of Christianity and is a part of the church, but that shouldn't be the only reason that I go. I'm not going there for the people. And actually, I shouldn't also leave because of the people. Sometimes, you know, if somebody gets offended for some reason or the other, somebody did or said or didn't say something that, you know, made someone offended, then someone might leave the church completely, right? Why did you leave the church? Well, because I was mistreated, because somebody said this to me. That again is not, that's reflecting that maybe I'm not going to the church with the right purpose, right? Um, also, I shouldn't, uh, I shouldn't go because I'm afraid of what would happen if I don't go. Like, I shouldn't be going out of fear. I shouldn't be going thinking that, um, well, if I don't go, then this is going to happen to me. That's not, that's not the attitude that I should have when I go to church. 
I mean, I also definitely shouldn't go thinking that I have nothing to learn and that I already know everything, right? Because that is reflected in my attitude, right? That, you know, maybe someone who has a lot of knowledge believes that they already have everything that church has to offer to them and they already know everything and they feel that they are themselves qualified to be a teacher and all this. The, the, the idea of going to church is not just about information, right? Um, it's about the spirit of God, right? That we are, we are growing in the spirit. We are growing in the fruit of the spirit. We're growing in virtue. We're growing in, in the understanding of God and that we are all growing together in the church. Walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to here rather than to give the sacrifice of fools. This is the sacrifice of fools, right? These points I made here, the sacrifice of fools is a person who is going for the wrong reason for they do not know that they do evil. They do not know that they do evil. A person who um, stops coming to church for whatever reason, even though they are not intent on evil, that is not their desire, but here, according to King Solomon, they do not know that they are doing evil, right? They are harming themselves. They're doing evil to themselves. I will also say this point here. I know that it's been now maybe almost a year um, since the COVID pandemic has begun. And I know a lot of people have had a lot of different opinions about coming to church and safety and so on. But I will say now after having a year has passed and thank God we have been praying um, and thank God, you know, God has protected us and that we are still able to have the services. We're still able to accommodate anyone who comes to attend. Um, we are still able to, to you know, to, to preach about God. We're still able to take communion, all those things in the church. I know some people are of the opinion that they just want to avoid it all for safety and that at some point when they feel that it is safe enough, they will return again. But I will tell you that you will never feel that it is safe enough to return, number one. And number two, you will have completely lost the habit and routine of coming to church and you will find it very hard to establish that habit again, right? We shouldn't be fooled, right? We shouldn't be fooled into thinking that coming to church is unsafe, that coming to church is gonna be harmful, that coming to church is dangerous, right? The, the, the God wants us to be in his house, right? Does that mean that there is no risk? No, I can't say that there is no risk because the world is a risky place. There is risk everywhere, regardless of what we do and where we go, there's risk everywhere. When we decide to leave our houses in the morning to go to work, there is all kinds of risks that we take, whether they be health risks, whether they be risks of what might happen to us when we are driving on the road and so on. The reason we take those risks is because we deem that the, 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 the place that we're going, the thing that we're going to do is, is worth the risk, right? So at some point I have to ask myself, do I believe that the church is worth the risk, okay? Do I believe that the church is worth the risk? And I, I'm, I'm saying this for the sake of those who I know have been in the church for a long time and out of fear have decided to stop attending um, believing that this is the, the right thing for them and their family. Uh, and I can understand that feeling very well, very much. Um, but at some point I have to ask myself, is this worth it? What is it that I'm gaining versus what is it that I'm losing? Because I'm definitely losing something. And I have to include that in my calculation in this decision of whether to stay or whether to go, because I can't expect that if this, you know, if this continues for however long it's going to continue, that I will ever feel safe enough 
with 100% certainty of its safety, that now I'm going to decide, okay, now it is time that I can go. I think we'll find that actually it will be much, much harder to restart this again, having stopped for so long. Number five, how can we teach kids to deal with bullying in school? This is a very important question um, because as more and more kids are not being brought up with basic manners, kids are not being brought up with a basic understanding of right and wrong at home, not being brought up with a sense of what does it mean to be kind? What does it mean to, to be patient with others? What does it mean to be respectful? More and more we're finding for various reasons that kids are not growing up with these principles, right? These are not things that they're being taught and maybe they're being taught the opposite and by example of what they see in their own houses. So sadly, um, kids have to deal with this um, on a regular ongoing basis. And, and while it is possible for there to be help from the teachers and from the schools to help to stop this, but you know, you can imagine that with the number of kids that are in schools nowadays, it might be difficult for the teachers to, um, to solve and to identify and to correct um, all these situations. And so it's important for us to um, think as parents, how is it that we can protect our kids? What is it that we can do to help them and to teach them to help themselves, to try to help them avoid these situations and to cope with them and to overcome them um, as much as possible. So I'm gonna speak about a few points here I did a little bit of research about this and um, this is this is what I found. Okay, so the first step is in, in dealing with bullying is that you have to identify bullying. You have to identify when it's happening because kids will not always identify it or understand it or label it um, as bullying. Um, and sometimes even if they do feel that they're being mistreated, they won't necessarily volunteer the information. They might be afraid to do it they might be even afraid, maybe thinking that they did something wrong or it's their fault. They might be afraid of what will happen to them if you know um, it becomes known, and then it, and then the bully finds out that you you told on him, and then maybe they're going to even increase the bullying even more, right? So for various reasons, kids might not want to speak up about bullying. So it's important for the parents to always be uh, sensitive to anything that could be bullying, um, and 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 then probe and ask more questions. Sometimes kids might just suddenly be afraid of going to school or, or have like stomachache, like nervousness, anxiety about going to school, right? Um, they might start complaining about going to school, wanting to find reasons not to go. Someone who otherwise was had no problem with school suddenly doesn't want to go. Why? They don't want to say. Maybe this is could be that there's some bullying going on. And so the parents need to ask very kind of probing questions, deep questions to get the, to the bottom of what's going on and make the kids realize that um, they're, you know, it's, it's safe to talk to you, you know, about it. Um, ask them in general about various social situations that are happening in school, like who do you interact with? How, what are those interactions look like? What is happening to the other kids? Are other kids getting bullied, you know, in school? Um, maybe don't even use the word bully, just try to describe it in another way um, to, to try to get a sense of what's happening um, with your kid and with other kids in the school. Um, if you ask general questions, you might not get an answer, right? But if you ask specific questions, you might be able to find um, the answer. 
Another thing it's important is when you feel that there might be bullying happening, your kid might getting bullied, don't overreact um, in anger when you find out this is happening because your reaction might bring more stress to the child. They need to see you as being like a source of stability and strong and calm because if you are strong and calm, then they can also learn to be calm when it happens, okay? To deal with it with a, with a rational mindset as opposed to being like a panic attack type of situation, right? There's a problem, we need to solve the problem. We need to take it seriously, but we're not gonna panic about it or lose our temper about it. We're gonna think rationally about what to do, okay? So once you've confirmed that there is bullying happening, that your kid is being bullied, right? There's several things that you can do. Number one is teach your kids to stop it before it starts. So create a list of responses uh, for your kids to respond to bullies in a direct way that is not antagonistic when they begin to feel like bullying is happening, like they're about to get bullied, the, maybe the bully is coming to talk to them um, in a way that they know that it's about to escalate. Um, they can say things to the bully, like they can say, leave me alone, and they begin to walk away, right? They can say, like, that wasn't nice, or some other uh, comeback that's not insulting, but makes it clear that that behavior is not wanted, right? And not just to sit there and to take it, but to give the response and to walk away, right? It's like exerting that they have control, that they don't have to stay in that environment, in that conversation if they don't want to be, okay? Um, the, the, the recommendation is actually for the parents to role play with their kids different scenarios to help build confidence with their kids. So the kid is having this problem with bullying, the parents can pretend like they're in that situation and can say certain things and have the kids practice how they should respond, what should they should do, so that when the real situation happens, they'll be more equipped to do it. Um, also promoting positive body language, right? For instance, maintaining eye contact, uh, making, making, you know, projecting uh, confidence um, instead of projecting fear. Remember the, the bully, he wants to feel that he is in control, right? He wants to feel like he is, um, in control and powerful. So when the child like looks cowering and, and timid and afraid, that plays into what the bully wants and it'll encourage the bully to do it more and more. So when, when we teach our kids to exude confidence and maintain eye contact, even when they're nervous, that will help them to avoid the bullying um, more often, okay? Um, also building up the child's self-confidence, like when bullying happens, um, you know, it tends to, 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 to diminish the child's self-worth, like their belief in their, in their own worth, right? Because of this bullying that's happening. Build, find ways to build up your child's self-confidence in other ways so that if they really are confident in themselves, they'll be less affected by the bullying. Like they won't accept it. They will, they will see that, okay, these people are saying something about me, but I don't believe it. It's not true. As opposed to believing it and accepting it and, and, and considering that there is really indeed something wrong with them. The more they are confident in themselves, uh, the less they will be affected by that. Also praising them for how they handle different situations. So like if they're in a situation and they treat it and they handled it well, like a bullying situation, praise them, make them feel like that was the right thing to do and that they should continue to do that. Um, another thing to do is, um, you know, to, to teach, uh, to, uh, sorry, to, 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 to take, take action to stop the bullying. Okay, so for instance, whenever um, bullying is happening and the child is experiencing this, okay, they need to go and report it and they should report it immediately. 
You know, sometimes kids don't know they need to report it and report it immediately. And so they might not say anything. And then maybe a month later in some conversation with the parents, the parents realized that their kids were bullied and they didn't know. And now it's already been a month and it's too late to go back and to address it, right? But if the child addresses it immediately, they go talk to a teacher or a school counselor or something and telling them, this is what happened to me today, okay? Then, then it's something that they can learn to prevent it from happening again. And if the child is reluctant to go, right, maybe even the parents can encourage them or can even go with them to where the child learns the skill themselves of selling it. Of course, it's possible for the parent to contact the school, right, and to tell them directly, yes. Um, but if we teach our kids to be able to, to report it themselves, then even when we don't end up finding out about it, then they will be able to do it um, on their own. Um, Another uh, important principle is to teach kids to protect other kids from being bullied, right? Because what the what will you know? It's one thing when a teacher comes and stops the bullying from happening, but if a bully sees that a lot of kids all together are against him, right? Like the, like the kid who is being bullied is now being defended by other kids. It makes a bigger impact. It makes the bully even less likely to do this because the bully wants to be accepted by his peers. And if he feels that his actions are actually causing him to be rejected by the peers, it will make him more motivated to stop. So, so just as, you know, we would want others to come to our defense, we also teach our kids, whenever you see someone else being bullied, go to their defense, you know, protect them from, from you know, the, the effects of the bullying. And then finally, we should teach our kids to manage their feelings, right, and learn to communicate them to the parents. So when the bullying does happen, then obviously our kids are gonna feel sad, okay? Teaching them how to deal with those feelings, how to cope with them, how to communicate them with the parents, how to understand them, right? So that they will be able to better manage them um, when it does happen. Number six, King Constantine and his mother, Queen Helen, did they actually die believing the Arian heresy? And if this is true, why do we still consider them saints while we do not consider Origen one? So it's true that Emperor Constantine, he at one point sided with Arius and ordered his return from exile. Okay. But when we celebrate, you know, uh, Emperor Constantine, we call him great. Why? Because if his role of ending the persecution of the Christians, right? He promoted Christianity. He made Christianity the official religion of the empire. And Emperor Constantine, he was very much involved in the affairs of the church. Like he built many churches. Um, he converted pagan temples to churches. He made legislation in the empire based on the Christian uh, beliefs and morals, okay? And he's actually the one who convened the first ecumenical council in Nicaea in 325 AD. We do know about Constantine that he wasn't baptized until close to his death in 337 AD, and he was baptized by an Arian bishop, okay, Eusebius of Nicomedia. But we believe that the reason he was the one who baptized him was because he was a close relative of theirs, uh, or, or sorry, he was a friend of theirs and a distant relative. So he was a distant relative and, and he was a friend um, of his which is why likely that whenever it came time for Constantine to want to be baptized, that he went to him because um, he had a close relationship with him. Um, however, at the Council of Nicaea, 
um, uh, Eusebius, this is Eusebius of Nicomedia, he was defending Arius, but Constantine uh, like rejected this, right? So um, while, while there was a period of his life where he was, you know, siding with Arius, doesn't mean that he was Arian. It doesn't mean that his entire life was characterized by the belief in Arianism, um, even though he was baptized in the end of his life by an Arian bishop, right? Um, so, so, you know, we look at all of the positive things that Constantine did for the church. Um, and so for that reason, we, we elevate him, we revere him and venerate him um, because of all of those good things. Number seven. What does the parable of the leaven in Matthew 13, verses 33 through 34 mean? Okay, so this uh, parable of the leaven, um, I will read it for you. Uh, it says what? Another parable he spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. Okay, that was the, that's the parable. This parable and the parable before it complement one another. They are both saying the same message. So I will read for you the parable before. The parable before is the parable of the mustard seed. It says, another parable he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches, okay? So in the parable of the mustard seed, you have a small seed, right? That is planted in the ground. And then this ends up becoming one of the largest trees, okay? And, and that's like all the birds in the, in, of the air come and nest in its branches. And then in the parable of the leaven, you have leaven, which starts out very small and gets mixed in with the flour and then ends up becoming like all of the flour, all of the bread ends up being leavened. So the theme of both of these parables is that the kingdom of God starts from something small and grows into something powerful and over, overarching, right? Just like, you know, the, the Christianity began with Christ, okay, and then spread to a small group of people and a small geographic area and then grew and, 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 and to, to, you know, the whole world, right? Essentially, right? They grew to the whole world. So we can see this principle getting played out right like christ christ began as an obscure person he wasn't well known and after his three years of ministry everyone knew who he was right the word of god spread very fast from a small number to uh, many many people even just in the first century of christianity alone um habakkuk 2 14 it says for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the lord as the waters cover the sea right so 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 that idea of the filling also, we could look at the, the filling uh, quickly, the growing quickly being uh, related to um, the work of the Holy Spirit, right? Like the work of the Holy Spirit is invisible, right? It's something, it's something that's like unseen. The Holy Spirit is unseen, but it completely transforms a person just as the yeast works from the inside out, okay? The Holy Spirit also works from the inside out. Like the Holy Spirit changes our heart and then that begins to be reflected in our actions. So, and then, and then once our actions change, then our actions begin to influence the actions of people around us and the word of God spreads rapidly, okay? Um, this leaven 
is necessary for the change to happen, right? Like if you took the bread without the leaven, it would just stay bread, it wouldn't rise, like this wouldn't happen. So, so the, the thing that is, that is causing the change is coming from the outside, right? The leaven is being added to the bread, okay? Just like the Holy Spirit is being added to us. It is the source of transformation and change. Um, and again, the, the growth, the explosive growth of Christianity. So this is what is meant by both those parables, the parable of the mustard seed um, and the parable of the leaven. Okay, so we've run out of time for today. So let's just conclude in a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. Grant us your peace and teach us, O Lord, to fulfill your will in everything that we do. Grant us, O Lord, to be always thankful for all the gifts you give us and all the talents that you give us and all of the opportunities that you give us. Help us, O Lord, to remain faithful and not to be tempted beyond what we are able. Grant us, O Lord, to know you more and more and to find comfort in you. For the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Have a good night.